Okay, so we are live, and um, as we have a custom not to greet each other on Tisha B'Av, I will just uh, give my routine housekeeping note. So if you are joining us here on Zoom, and I send you an invitation to become a panelist, that does not obligate you to do anything. It just enables you to share your video. If you wish, you don't have to, we understand it's a day. Um, and you can unmute when we have periods for question and answer discussion um, as Rabbi Reifen deems appropriate. Um, if you're not interested in joining as a panelist, that's okay. I will eventually get the picture and stop inviting you. You're welcome to make comments, ask questions in the chat. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, you can put your questions and comments in the comment section directly below the video. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, there is no way to interact other than a carrier pigeon or something of the sort. So without further ado, rather right then, thanks. Uh, again, as Noah said, we don't greet each other on Tisha B'Av, um, but I'll just say this is a, a uh, wonderful opportunity to share a little bit of um, of Torah's Tisha B'Av. Uh, we don't, we also don't learn Torah on Tisha B'Av except for the subjects that are uh, appropriate for the uh, spirit of the day. Uh, one of which, of course, is the topic that we're going to talk about now, which is uh, the Book of Eicha, and specifically uh, what I called theological justification in the Book of Eicha. And as soon as I fired off my title, I wondered if I had uh, wondered if I had had cast the net a little too wide or, or alternately a little too narrowly, because I don't want to talk only about theological justification. What I really want to do is a deep dive into the Book of Eicha, thinking about theological justification. Uh, we'll define exactly what that means. Um, but also thinking about it in terms of all sorts of theological issues that come up in the book, um, and essentially how the book of Eicha, uh, some of the ideas of the way the book of Eicha helps us grapple with, uh, with suffering uh, and with the tragedy that we commemorate uh, on this day. Um, in terms of uh, the text that we're going to be using, uh, there is a, a source sheet with two sources on it, which I'll share uh, in the chat box. Um, and most of the text that we'll be using, however, is from Tanakh and specifically from the book of Eicha. So if you have a Tanakh on hand, that would be useful. Um, if you don't have a Tanakh on hand, I will be sharing sources. Uh, I'll be sharing sources here, but, uh, but it, we're going to be, a, there's going to be a lot of jumping back and forth. Um, so I hope, I hope it will work smoothly. Um, let me just share my source sheet. Okay, that's in the chat box. Um, again, if you have questions or comments, uh, you can put them in the chat box and I will check that every few minutes. Um, and uh, and Noah will also be monitoring that. Um, and otherwise, um, otherwise uh, you can also raise your hand and I'll take questions again every couple of minutes. Um, okay. What I really want to talk about, as I said, uh, to, to start, is the concept of suffering uh, as the book of Eicha discusses it. And I want to note first that when we think about suffering in Tanakh and the way the Tanakh relates to suffering, um, Eicha and the book, of, the book of Eicha and the book of Eov, the book of Job, are really the only two books that deal with suffering as their main topic. There's a lot of suffering in various parts of Tanakh, various stories, many different stories involve uh, elements of suffering. But in terms of dealing with suffering as the topic of, uh, of, 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 of the book, uh, these are the only two books that really grapple with it. And they're very different in character. Uh, the book of Job uh, is much more abstract, is much more philosophical. Um, it tells a story, but the story, I think it's fairly clear, is meant to be uh, kind of idealized. It's a meditation on the concept of suffering, and as we'll talk about, God's role in suffering. 
In contrast, the book of Eicha is much more about a lived experience. Uh, the book of Eicha, of course, is, is uh, traditionally associated with the destruction of the temple in 587, 586 BCE. Um, but when you read through the book, as we're going to do, uh, it's actually remarkable to the extent to which it does not mention very much in the way of specific details. Even uh, it, it talks about Jerusalem, of course, uh, it talks about Israel. So it's specific to the Jewish people and specific to the land of Israel. Um, but there's nothing really very specific in terms of the, the, the sequence of events that took place during that period of time. Um, in fact, the book is remarkably disorganized. It doesn't really tell a story. It, it conveys uh, a sense of, uh, it conveys a sense of the calamity. It conveys a sense of, uh, disorientation, disillusionment of suffering, of course, uh, but there's nothing really specific and no specific story that is told. Even the temple, even the Benimikdash, is referred to only obliquely um, in, uh, in in one section in the beginning of uh, towards the beginning of chapter two, where it talks about God forsaking His altar, God forsaking Him in Mizbeach. Um, but but again, there's nothing really specific about the temple per se. What that does, of course, is it makes Eicha a much broader text and one that can be uh, read uh, in, in light of many other tragedies that have happened in Jewish history, many of which, of course, we commemorate today. Um, and the book of text of Eicha has been not only, um, we not only read it on Tisha B'Av, it's also co-opted uh, in the many keynote, in, the, in the, 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 the literature of keynote that we recite today. The Paitanim, the, the poets who composed the keynote, uh, drew heavily and, and freely on the text of Eicha uh, and, 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 and used it to craft many of the beautiful and very moving keynote that we say today. And therefore, Eicha, as, as, as much as it's about a lived experience, um, also becomes about suffering through Jewish history uh, and how we relate to God in the experience of suffering. So I want to take a step back and think not just about suffering, um, and not certainly not just about justifying God's role in suffering, but more broadly about the concept of meaning. And when we think about suffering, um, what suffering means in a very broad sense. Um, I know that sounds very disingenuous, uh, and I'm gonna try to define what I mean. Uh, and those of you who have been in my shirim uh, probably see what's coming here, because I wanna talk about meaning. What is meaning? What is meaning? When I say this book, when I use the term book to refer to this, um, what, what does the word book mean? Well, I say the word book, and then I you, you see this, and you associate book in your mind with this. Or if I say Tanakh, you associate the word Tanakh with this book. Um, when we, the way that we use meaning, we attach two forms to one another. Here is a physical object, and here is a word, book or Tanakh, that we associate with one another. That association of two forms, the physical form and the sound coming out of my mouth and turning into uh, electronic forms and coming out of your computer, those two forms, the association between those two forms becomes meaning. Meaning means that I'm able to take one thing and attach something else to it or associate something else to it. I know, again, that sounds very overly simplistic, but really that's what all meaning is. And when we think about higher levels of meaning, ultimately it all comes back to the ability to string together different signs, different forms that, that have some function or some significance. And that's what we do when we create meaning, okay? Um, why is that relevant to suffering? Well, first of all, we make meaning out of suffering in many different ways. And I want to talk about that in terms of uh, the first reading that I've given you on the source sheet, which is taken from a book called uh, The Survivor by, uh, by a writer named uh, uh, Terence, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, De Press. Um, he was a Holocaust scholar and wrote a book called uh, The Survivor, Anatomy of Life in the Death Camps. Um, this is not a first-person narrative. This is he was himself was not a survivor, but he's writing about survivor testimonies, and writing about the way that we make meaning out of uh, out of suffering. So here he goes. 
Each thing said Spinoza in the ethics insofar, should I share my screen or does everybody have it? I think I better share my screen. Okay, hold on a second here. Okay, can everyone see? Okay, if you can't see, please put something in the chat box. Each thing, said Spinoza in the ethics, insofar as it is in itself, endeavors to persevere in its being. That may not be true for rocks and stars, but for societies and men, it is undeniable. Survival of the body and its well-being take priority over everything else. Although this imperative trans is transcended and lost sight of when the machinery of civilization is working as it should. In other words, we, our goal is to survive, and we don't usually think about what that means until our survival is threatened. The remarkable fact, however, is while the business of living goes forward from day to day, we reserve our reverence and highest praise for action which culminates in death. I am referring to images of the hero in Western religion and literature, and here there is no doubt. Our serious models draw their sanction and compelling force from death. Those who for centuries have commanded love and attention, imitation, Christ, Socrates, the martyrs, the tragic hero always, the warrior from Achilles to the unknown soldier, are all sacrificial victims. All resolve conflict by dying, and through death ensure that the spirit they spoke or fought for shall not perish. The pattern is so honored and familiar that a connection between heroism and death seems natural. Okay, what he's talking about is martyrdom or heroism, where death acquires meaning, or suffering acquires meaning by being by serving a higher cause. Here, by the way, is another another kind of uh, another axis of meaning. Sometimes I can have an association between two things, and the two things are it, it don't replace one another; they just associate with one another. So when I say the word Tanakh, and I get a Tanakh, the word Tanakh is still here and it's still useful. When I talk about death as having significance as martyrdom i'm associating death with martyrdom but notice that the when i when when somebody is martyred their cause takes the place of substitutes for their life one thing takes the place of another and displaces it that's one way to make meaning out of suffering or death to understand that the cause has replaced life. Back to depress. The struggle to survive, on the other hand, is felt to be suspect. We speak merely of surviving as if in and of itself life were not worth much, as if we feel that life is justified only by the things which negate it. Again, think about a kind of classical model of uh, Greek warfare, again, not to just pick on the Greeks, because this is true of many different societies, but think about Greek warfare, right? There are those who just survived, and there are the heroes, and the heroes, of course, often are the ones who die on the battlefield, die a heroic death. The survivors are not necessarily venerated. We don't have songs about the survivors. We have songs about those who sacrifice their lives. Men have always been ready to die for beliefs, sacrificing life for higher goals. That made sense once, perhaps, but no cause moves without live men to move it. And our predicament today, as governments know, is that ideas and ideologies are stopped by killing those who hold them. The final solution has become a usual solution, and the world is not what it was. Within a landscape of disaster, places like Auschwitz, Hiroshima, and the obliterated Indo-Earth of, Indo of Indochina, where people die in the thousands, where machines reduce courage to stupidity and dying to complicity with aggression, it makes no sense to speak of death's dignity or of its communal blessing. The grandeur of death is lost in a world of mass murder, and except for special cases, the martyr and his tragic counterpart are the types of hero unfit for the darkness ahead. When men and women must live with terrible odds, when near existence becomes miraculous, to die is no way a triumph. He's a bit reductive here, but I think he makes a good point. In an era of mass murder, um, heroism is not necessarily to die on the battlefield for a cause. It is heroic, sometimes more heroic, to survive, and sometimes simply to survive without necessarily doing anything heroic. Because, of course, when we're looking to build a better society, when we're looking to forward a cause, sometimes living is the best thing that 
we can do because only those who are living can actually continue the cause. So he makes the case for the value of survival. Here's an interesting question then. When we talk about survival, what do we mean when we say that, uh, when, when, when we speak about survival in light of Megibat Echa, um, have the Jewish people survived? Okay. Again, it seems like a naive question, but it's worth asking because when we think about this kind of literature, literature about suffering, it's not always a given that somebody has survived. So in Megillah Echa, has Israel survived? Okay, I think we're going to need to, sorry, usually I'm used to teaching in a more interactive way, but I think this, this Zoom session is not going to lend itself to that. The answer obviously is yes. Um, or I say obviously, but what makes it obvious? Um, maybe just the fact that the book has been written, certainly the fact that we are here to read the book. Uh, but Todd Lenefeld, it's called the name of Todd Lenefeld, I'll put his name in the chat box, so you have it, uh, who I think is one of the most incisive writers on, uh, on the book of Echa, um, does some very incisive form critical analysis on Echa. Um, and his book is referred, he does this in a book called uh, Surviving Lamentations. And I'll also put that in the chat box. Um, he talks about the kinds of literature, the kinds of genres that Echa takes from. And he says the two of the genres that one can put Echa in are the dirge, the, 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 the mourning dirge when somebody has died, and the lament. A lament is woeing, is, 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 is again a kind similar to the dirge, except it's, uh, it's crying out in a particular situation without necessarily being a situation of mourning. So he says at the beginning, the book of Echa takes the form of a dirge. Echa yashva badad ha'ir how desolate the city sits that was once full of life. It sounds like he's talking about the city that doesn't exist anymore and an entity that doesn't exist anymore, a society that has been completely destroyed. And yet, as we read into the chapter, and here I'll share a different screen. As we continue reading into chapter one of Eicha, which is about to come up on the screen. Again, we begin with, alas, lonely the city once great with people. But as soon as we reach verse nine, her uncleanliness clings to her skirt. She gave no thought to her future. She has sunk appallingly with none to comfort her. And then what? See, O oh Lord, my misery, how the enemy jeers. Who's speaking here? Israel, the, the, the figure of Zion, the figure of Zion. So as soon as she's speaking, it's clear that there is no body here. There's no deceased. The dirge cannot really be a dirge unless there is somebody to mourn for. And here Zion is clearly very, is still very clearly alive. So in terms of the question of survival, of making meaning out of suffering simply by surviving, Echa checks that box. There's significance to the fact that amidst this destruction, Israel has survived um, and, and continues to survive. And the miracle of Jewish survival begins right here in 586, when so many other city-states in the ancient Near East were destroyed and ceased to exist and had no future, um, the very miracle of, of, of Mekivad Echa and the most basic level in which it has meaning is that Israel continues to exist. Tavlenfeld in his book actually talks about Echa in, 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 he frames it in terms of the literature of survival, hence the term surviving lamentations, and talks a little about what it means to survive. And we'll come back to Lenefeld's uh, insights a little later on uh, in, in the class. Um, this notion of the presumably deceased suddenly raising uh, raising her voice is very interesting because the, the 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 moments at which Israel or more specifically the figure of Zion speaks in the book are very telling, um, and are going to be an important piece of the with the, a, a bigger picture that I want to try to put together. But what I want to do first is go to uh, another passage from. Um, 
from a book called um, The Body in Pain. Uh, it's a fairly well-known book by Elaine Scarry. Elaine Scarry wrote a, she's a, um, she, uh, she teaches uh, at Harvard. Her, her, uh, her, her training, I think, is in English literature. Uh, I could be mistaken. But she wrote this book on uh, a, a, a report by Amnesty International about uh, torture around the world. And essentially, it's a, it, it, it's, it's a meditation on or a, a, a study in torture and, and an analysis of the way the torture functions. Uh, in 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 a broad uh, in, in in a broad kind of anthropological uh, or, or 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 cultural sense, um, it makes for great very grim reading as you might imagine, but it's also very insightful in a lot of ways. Um, again, let me share. Uh, go back to share the other screen. Scary writes as follows: In this closed world, where conversation is displaced by interrogation where human speech is broken off in confession and disintegrates into human cries, where even those cries can be broken off to become one more weapon against the person himself or against a friend. In this world of broken and severed voices, it is not surprising that the most powerful and healing moment is often in that, that which, in a human voice, though still severed, floating free, somehow reaches the person whose sole reality has become his own unthinkable isolation, his deep corporal engulfment. The prison who, alone, in long solitary confinement and repeatedly tortured, found within a loaf of bread a matchbox containing a small piece of paper that had written on it the single whispered word, Coragio, take courage. The Uruguayan man arranging for some tangible signal that his words had reached their destination. My darling, if you receive this letter, put half a bar of boa soap in the next parcel. The imprisoned Chilean women who on Christmas Eve sang with all their might to the men in a separate camp tortured his, his or her voice to use language to let pain to give an accurate account of itself. As torture consists of acts that magnify the way in which pain destroys a person's world, self and voice, world self and voice, so these, others acts, these other acts that restore the voice become not only a denunciation of the pain, but almost a diminution of the pain a partial reversal of the process of torture itself. Scary talks a lot about the effect of torture on the body and the way that it um, in some ways severs the body from the, the, the person's self. You lose control of your body. You also lose control of your voice. And she's talking in this passage about the incredible power of language against torture. Torture is designed to rob a person of his or her voice, to manipulate a person's voice, to essentially divorce the voice from their self. When they find some voice, some communication, either from themselves or from someone else, that is in a way countering the effects of the torture in returning the voice to themselves and returning essentially their sense of of subjective agency over themselves. The fact that Sion can talk, the fact that Sion and Israel are given a voice with an Eicha is deeply significant. Because as soon as you can put language to suffering, that does something about lessening the suffering. And that is, in the most basic sense, what we mean when we talk about giving meaning to suffering. What does suffering mean? Well, what does this book mean? This book means, on the most basic level, that I can call it a book. I can assign a particular function to it. I can use words to describe it. I can convey to somebody else what it, what it is. When I'm able to put words to suffering, that's an amazing thing because what it does is it says this person is no longer being manipulated and tortured and controlled. The person is able to give voice to that which they are experiencing, and that alone gives it meaning. Um, I didn't find this quote in time, but if, you're, if you uh, want to do some uh, Tisha B'Av reading, uh, survival in Auschwitz, uh, of course, is, is uh, a terrible. <laughs> And 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 appropriate, terrible but appropriate thing to read today. Um, and 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 like much Holocaust literature, it shares uh, many features with other Holocaust literature. One of the things that it shares is Primo Levi's um, deep 
fear that when he gets out of the camp, he won't be able to communicate what he's experienced. And I think this is very, very common for a very common feeling that survivors had, and it had both during the war and had afterwards, that there was no language to express what they had experienced. When a survivor is able to put language to their experience, is able to put a label on it, is able to say somebody else, here is what happened to me, that in and of itself is extraordinarily powerful. And the most basic level of what it means to make meaning out of suffering, to be able to communicate. The examples that Scary gives here are, are so interesting. Um, the, the, the matchbox in the, in, in the loaf of bread, right? Um, the, the, the message saying, put this in the parcel, just to know that your letter actually got through uncensored. Um, it's not only speaking, of course, speaking is, 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 is a miracle in and of itself, but also communicating. And the question then about Eicha is when Sion speaks, who is she speaking to? Okay, of course, it's not only Sion. I mentioned Sion because Sion shows up in the first chapter of Eicha. Um, but of course, Perik Gimel of Eicha uh, is also about the speaking subject. And in Perik Gimel of Eicha, let me switch screens again. Uh, no, sorry, not that. In Perik Gimel of Eicha. Uh, the speaking subject is an anonymous male figure. Ani ra ani I am the man who has known affliction of the, under the rod of his wrath. Okay, we'll come back to that speaking subject again in a couple of minutes. Um, when the speaking subject speak, who do they speak to? Well, with very few exceptions, in fact, maybe only one exception, when um, which is in, just have my notes here. Um, she calls to the passersby in uh, chapter one, uh, verse 12. Look about and see, is there any agony like mine, which was dealt to me when the Lord afflicted Please bear with us. Uh, hopefully, Rabbi Reifen will be back in a moment. Please unmute yourself. This passage is the only place where she turns to the passersby and says, look at me. Um, there's language that talks about God. 
Rabbi Rickman, you're muted. Uh, hopefully that will be better. Again, I don't know where I where I cut out, but the only language, uh, the only figure who Israel or the figure of Zion addresses is God, and this is the most basic sense in which we will we will if we say that Echa is a theological text that 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 this is what we're talking about. When we talk about theology because theology most basically is language that talks about God. When one asks, is Eicha a theological text, therefore, I think the most basic sense, the most basic answer, the simplest answer is yes, because God features very prominently in this text. And when Israel makes meaning out of its suffering, when Israel chooses to put a voice to its suffering, the only person or the only figure who is worth addressing, the only figure who is there, there Israel is interested in communicating that suffering to is God. Just like uh, the the figures who Scary mentions, who are desperate to communicate with somebody, but they don't just want to communicate with somebody. They want to communicate with somebody who 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 is able to understand what they're doing and is able possibly to help them, is able possibly to convey further the the experience that they've had. The 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 only figure who is important in this story as the object, as the recipient of of the speech, the the, the various times that is that the the figures speak is God. And therefore, Eicha is, in that sense, a theological text. It's interested in God and God's relationship to Israel. Survival alone is not enough to give meaning to this experience, because survival alone does not give uh, does not allow Israel to exist in the sense that 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 makes it a special nation. What makes Israel a special nation is its relationship to God. And therefore, the only meaning that survival has here is if not only if Israel as a nation survives, but if it continues to have that relationship with God. The question then is, of course, what kind of relationship is that? And how does God feature in this whole experience of suffering? One particular discourse or discussion that we can have within theology, within the realm of theology, is the discourse that's called theodicy. Theodicy is what we mean when we talk about the justification of, uh, of, of, of uh, theological justification. Theodicy is a discourse which tries to justify God's actions or God's allowing suffering to happen in the world. Is Echa a theological text? Unquestionably. Is Eicha interested in questions of theodicy? That is not so clear. We mentioned at the beginning that the other book that, uh, that talks about suffering in Tanakh, or his subject is suffering, is Eov, the book of Job. And the book of Job is unquestionably a book that is about theodicy. It's dedicated entirely to a discussion of theodicy, of justifying God's allowing suffering to exist in the world. Um, and when I said before that Eicha, that that Eov rather, the Book of Job is very kind of abstract and philosophical. Um, we we if we take a quick look at the Book of Job, we and 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 see how it depicts suffering and God's role in that suffering, we'll understand very quickly how Eicha is different. How does the Book of Job depict suffering? I'm not going to read through the whole thing, uh, but there's the, 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 the adversary, the Satan comes before God and said, Job has it too good. Uh, you think he's so faithful to you. And God says, okay. Do what you will. And Solon escaped to tell. This one was still speaking, never came and said, God's fire. Heaven holds the sheep and the boys, all these calamities, all of the of Job's position.
again, all of Job's possessions, all of his uh, cattle, as all of his children are are, are wiped out. Uh, then he Satan comes back and says, "You you haven't really tested him yet because you haven't afflicted him personally." So then he afflicts his body. The suffering is told in a very uh, very uh, kind of matter of fact, cold re- report, kind of report with no sense of, of of feeling or emotion at all. It's told as a very clear and very simple story. Eicha, of course, is told very differently. Um, the suffering that happens in Eicha is anything but matter of fact, um, and it's anything but narrative. As we said before, Eicha is not a story. It doesn't unfold in a continuous story. It's in fact all jumbled together. One has to piece together various elements of the book uh, in order to get a bigger picture of, 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 of what exactly happened here. Um, what Eicha is of course interested in is not the facts, but the effects of the suffering. Um, and here we can start to focus on the specific language of Eicha and the way that it crafts meaning around suffering. As we go through Eicha, uh, I'm assuming uh, that, that most of you are at least familiar, somewhat familiar with the book. So we're not going to go to specific verses unless they, they serve a specific purpose. But I want I wanna, uh, to speak generally about the, the contours of Eicha and the way that it describes uh, the 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 the, the calamities uh, that it's referring to. Who are the characters in Eicha? There's Israel, broadly speaking. There's the enemy, and there's God. Each of those characters is depicted in in a way that is um, fairly consistent and also fairly specific to this book and different than other books in Tanakh. Let me share my screen with you again. You know what? I'm not going to share my screen because I'm afraid that that's what's making uh, what's 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 making uh, things crash. So if you can follow along in your Tanakh, if you have this JPS Tanakh, uh, the Book of Eicha uh, begins on um, begins on page 1749, and we're going to be flipping through the Book of Eicha. Um, uh, from, from so so keep your kind of flip, flip back and forth within these couple of pages. Um, what the book of Echa does um, is describes Israel in remarkable. It, it, we have three characters: Israel, the enemy, and God. And the most interesting and varied character by far is Israel. It's remarkable when you go through the book and see how Israel is described. Um, virtually every subpopulation within Israeli society gets their mention. Children, men, women, elderly people, people of all different professions, uh, from from Kohanim to Nevi'im, uh, the priests, the prophets, uh, the elders, the the and so on and so forth, on and on and on. It's it's quite remarkable how uh, how 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 diverse the depiction of Israel is in this section. Uh, or in this book, I should say. The, the language that's used to describe Israel is also remarkably varied. There are so many metaphorical phrases that are used to describe Jerusalem, to describe Israel, Tiferet Israel, um, the, the, the Mikdash is described as, um, in chapter two, um, is described as... Um, Sukkot, the Sukkah of God, Mizbecho, Mikdasho, Arminoteha. The, the, the variety of language is really astonishing. And it's what makes reading Eicha, as grim reading as it is, also a very rich experience because the poetry is really so vivid and, and so evocative. There is very clearly an effort to make Israel, to give us a very clear sense of the personal experience of Israel. There, there's, there, there, there is a kind of, 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 of. There's an effort to depict things as, as broadly and vividly and in as much detail as possible, in a way to immerse the reader in this experience of suffering as deeply as it can. Contrast this, for example, with the depiction of the enemy. The enemy, 
who features frequently here, has a number of different epithets, the Tsar or the Oyev, but the enemy is almost entirely impersonal and abstract. That's not to say it doesn't have attributes. It is fierce. The enemy is merciless. The enemy is taunting. It is exultant. My 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 favorite slash most most devastating the my my favorite but also the most devastating verse I think here is in chapter two verse sixteen. All your enemies jeer at you. They hiss and gnash their teeth and cry, "We've ruined her!" Ah, this is the day we hoped for. We have lived to see it. The enemies of Israel have been waiting for this day, and they say, "Ah, now we've got you." The enemy is swift. Uh, for example, if you look in chapter four, verse seventeen. Chapter 4, verse 19, our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the sky. They chased us in the mountains. They wait for us in the wilderness. They're like animals. But of course, Echa is not interested in the, the enemy per se. They're not interested in giving us a sense of their, their military prowess. All of the descriptions of the enemy are simply a way of understanding the terrible, terrible effects that their attacks have had on Israel. The enemy is there as the faceless, nameless other, um, and very deliberately so, because they're only significant insofar as they have been so, so merciless and so fierce and so absolutely devastating in their attacks. The only single place where the enemy has a name is the end of chapter four, where Israel confronts, the narrator confronts the nation of Edom and says, Rejoice and exalt her, Edom, who dwell in the lands of Uz. Uz, to you the cup shall pass, you shall get drunk and expose your nakedness. In other words, the, the, the nation of Edom, of course, closely related to, but also a terrible adversary of Israel, is given a single call out and saying, don't get too high and mighty, your turn shall come. Um, this is an interesting contrast, therefore, in the way that the language of Eicha crafts the experience of suffering, it deeply immerses us and causes us to, to, to deeply sympathize with and empathize with Israel, whereas the enemy is the nameless, faceless other who is simply inflicting pain on us. Here, of course, we get into a thornier question, which is, if Israel is the victim, which it clearly is here, overwhelmingly, is it also sinful? Because when we start to talk about theological justification, the most common justification in Tanakh, in fact, the theme of much of Tanakh is, Israel is punished because Israel is sinful. And is that true in Echa as well? One can't say that Echa shies away from calling Israel sinful. So in the simple answer, the simple factual answer is, Yes, Israel is depicted as sinful, starting as early as chapter 1, verse 5. Her enemies are now her masters, her foes are at ease, because the Lord has afflicted her for her many transgressions. And I would say that this verse, which kind of offhandedly mentions Israel's transgressions, becomes kind of a simple refrain throughout the book. Every couple of verses, it mentions Israel's transgressions, Israel's sins, and why God has punished us because we are sinful. The most explicit, uh, what we might call theological justification, um, in Hebrew, theological justification is usually called tzidduk hadin, tzidduk meaning to, to make God righteous, even though one could say otherwise. And in chapter 1, verse 18, tzaddik adonai hu ki fihu mariti, the Lord is in the right, the Lord is a tzaddik, because I have disobeyed him. That I think is the most explicit Siduk Hadin, theological justification in the whole book. But again, the sins of Israel are referred to over and over, and sometimes, but 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 only uh, but but much more rarely, they're referred to with a little more specificity, not just general sins. For example, this may be the most vivid example, chapter four, verse 13. It was the sins of her prophets, the iniquities of her priests who had shed in her midst the blood of the just. The period, one of the periods uh, shortly before the destruction of the temple was the reign of Menasheh, the reign of King Menasheh. Uh, and, and what we learn in the book of uh, the book of Malachim is the period of the king of Menasheh was not only a period of terrible idolatry, uh, but also terrible bloodshed. Um, the two uh, perhaps go together, but, 
but the the sense of 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 uh, the the leaders of the people, the priests and the and the and 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 the prophets being responsible for shedding the blood of the just um, is 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 a very damning. Uh, a, a, a very damning passage, and, and therefore it would be difficult to say that Echa shies away from calling Israel sinful. Nonetheless, when you read through Echa, it's striking that when, when, when you read through Echa and then compare it, say, to, to uh, say, this morning's Haftarah uh, in the book of Yirmiyahu, if you want to quickly turn back to Yirmiyahu or just listen. The book of Yirmiyahu, we read this morning, Perikhet, chapter 8. And amidst the description of suffering and devastation that Yirmiyahu is describing here, presumably before the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem, okay, the, 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 the countryside uh, of, of, the, of uh, Judea had been devastated uh, by warring armies in earlier, uh, earlier periods. Um, amidst the description of this uh, general devastation, um, he begins a litany of talking about Israel's sins. Um, for example, chapter 9, verse 3, beware every man of his friend, trust not a brother, for every brother takes advantage, every friend is baseless in his dealings, and on and on and on about how the, the, the interpersonal relationships in, in, in Judean society um, had, had deteriorated, and people were cheating each other, people were stabbing each other in the back, that is not the, the, the overwhelming sense one gets from the book of Eicha. The book of Eicha refers obliquely to Israel's sins, but that does not seem to be the major theme of the book. We'll come back to that in just a couple of minutes, um, because I, I do want to come back to the theme of theological justification and draw it in a little more detail. Um, but what I want to talk about now, just for a few minutes, uh, is God. Because we said there are three figures in the book of Eicha. There's Israel, there's the enemy, and there's God. And God is also depicted in the book of Eicha differently than he features in much of the rest of Tanakh. God is, of course, uh, is, 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 has, has a very close relationship with Israel, uh, which is sorely tested in the course of this book. Um, but, but God is never given a voice. And in that way, Echa is starkly different than most of the rest of, uh, of, of Tanakh, and certainly from prophetic literature. God appears here only as object, the object of, uh, of, 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 of Israel's, that, that the, he who has foisted suffering on Israel, he who has, is now the subject of, of Israel's attention, of Israel's desire, perhaps of, of, of Israel's resentment. But God features here solely as an object. God also has interesting relationship to the enemy, because sometimes we see God actively taking his aggression out on Israel. Sometimes God is merely supporting the enemy or allowing the enemy to do that. And if we had more time to delve into some of the, the, the nuances of theodicy, we would make, be able to make more of that distinction between God simply allowing the evil things to happen, whereas God doing them himself. One approach to theodicy, of course, is to say that God is not the source of evil, that God merely allows evil to happen. Why does God allow evil to happen? Man has free will. Man can do as he wants. And one of the side effects of having free will is the ability to choose to do evil to other people. God can either disrupt that and thereby take free will away from mankind, or God can allow it to happen. That distinction between God allowing evil to happen and God actively bringing evil to, uh, to, to, to mankind is totally lost in most of the book of Eicha, because even if there are references to God removing his hands and allowing the enemy in, for example, if you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 3, in blazing anger, he has cut down all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand in the presence of the foe. Right, that verse alone captures this 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 ambiguity. Is God doing this, or is God merely allowing the enemy in? Right, he's withdrawing his right hand, meaning he's not stopping them. But at the same time, in this verse and in most of the rest of the beginning of chapter two, God is the aggressor. God is the one who is raining his fire down. God is the one who is pouring out his wrath, etc., etc., etc. And now the question is, if we understand that. Israel is sinful, or that Israel is not unsinful, 
right? It, it, it mentions that Israel is sinful, but doesn't make a big deal out of that. It's kind of mentioned uh, in passing every so often. And if God is the aggressor, how do we come to terms with the aggressor, the fact that God is the aggressor? And should we chalk this up, as it is often done in Tanakh, to Israel's sinfulness, that God is taking his, will, uh, his, his, his wrath out on Israel, and the solution to the problem, or the, 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 the way that we make meaning out of this suffering, is saying, we deserved it. That expression, or that, that formulation of, of that approach to suffering, is not, again, something that comes to the fore uh, a, a lot in the book of Eicha. If we had to think about, um, if, if, if one had to pick up on, on a couple of verses or passages uh, that, that take the approach that we find in most of the rest of Tanakh, Israel has sinned and therefore God is punishing Israel, what would we expect the next step to be? What's the next step in the, the, the anticipated narrative that would make some sort of meaning out of this event? Israel has sinned, God has punished them, and now Israel repents and God accepts them back. Where do we see any discussion of repentance in Eicha? Well, we'll come to a, 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 the, the most famous verse, the one that sticks out of your minds. As soon as I say repentance in Eicha, you think of the second to last verse in Eicha. Take us back, O Lord, to yourself and let us come back to renew our days of old, right? Juva, there you have it. This is the verse that we will say over and over and over again in a couple of months' time around the holiday season. This is where it comes from. And yet, it's not so clear that this is chuva in a classical religious sense in the way that we think about it. First of all, what's the sequence here? Hashiveinu Adonai Eilecha Venashuva, right? Return us to you, and then we will return. If we're the ones who are supposed to be doing chuva, as we say, you would expect the sequence to be reversed. Does that happen? Why, actually, yes. If you look at the book of Zechariah, flipping back here in your current Tanakhs, in your JPS Tanakhs, rather, to the book of Zechariah, this is on page 1383, the very beginning of the book of Zechariah, verse 2. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. <laughs> See the book of Echa. Say to them further, Thus says Lord of hosts, turn back to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will turn back to you. The last verse of Eicha, the second to last verse of Eicha, exactly reversed. Here we have tshuva in a classical sense, where you, mankind, Israel, do tshuva, and then I will take you back. So it's not entirely clear that Eicha is talking about tshuva in that sense. It's definitely talking about return, but not quite maybe in the sense of repentance. The second problem with reading this as a classical version of repentance is the verse that follows, which is the last verse of Eicha. Okay, and I'm going to read the translation here with, and then give a little caveat. For truly you have rejected us, bitterly raged against us. That, that's the JPS translation, but it's, it's alighting one word. It's not ki ma'os ma'astanu, for you have rejected us. Rather, it's ki im ma'os ma'astanu. And the word im means if. For if you have rejected us, bitterly raged against us, what's the problem with that translation? It's a hanging dependent clause. For if you have rejected us, then what? So Todd Lenefelt uh, also uh, comments on this verse uh, and, and, and has, a, has a, 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 a really illuminating suggestion, which is this is meant to be a hanging clause. Echa ends on a kind of ellipsis. For if you have rejected us, then what? <laughs> then we don't know. When this construct features in biblical Hebrew, the ki'im construct, it features almost always in the sense of a, a, a condition where the conclusion to the condition is clear. Just one example, when 
Tamar says to Yehuda, she's negotiating with Yehuda. Yehuda wants to sleep with her. She has dressed herself up as a harlot. And she says to him, this is in the book of Bereshit, the book of Genesis, chapter 38, verse Uh, verse 17. This is page 81 in the JPS Tanakh. Im titain eravon ad shalchecha. She says, if you will send a goat from the herd, if you will send a goat from the herd, then what? Then yes, then I agree. To sleep with you, says Tamar to Yehuda. But the then clause is missing. Why is the then clause missing? Because it's understood. That's they're negotiating, and that's what they're negotiating for. What is the then clause that matches this clause here? The then clause is missing, and we're afraid maybe to give the answer because the answer might be God has forsaken us forever. We just don't know. And therefore, it's not entirely clear that an approach of Chuva is going to give the answer. Chuva features in one other passage in Eicha, and I want to briefly touch on that before I come back to what we talked about earlier, which is the, the dynamic of speech and the significance of Tzion's speaking. The dynamic of Chuva, the theme of Chuva comes up in the book of Eicha in chapter three which is often uh, touted as the pinnacle or the central passage in Eicha. Why? It's the one, if Eicha is a book about theology, chapter three is the one that talks most explicitly about theology. We don't have time to read through the whole chapter, but we'll just highlight a couple of the verses. Um, for example, maybe the most evocative verse, chapter three, verse 40, let us search and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Lift us up with our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. Those are the verses that jump out at us as being most explicitly about this kind of tzidukadin, this kind of justification. If we're the ones who are supposed to do tshuva, presumably the reason that we've been punished and the significance of our punishment, of our suffering, is as punishment for our sins. That is one way to read chapter three and one uh, maybe important theme within chapter three, but I think even within chapter three, it's not entirely sufficient because what happens afterwards in the very next verse in chapter three, chapter three, verse 42, we have transgressed and rebelled, you have not forgiven. All of a sudden, the speaker here classically understood as Yirmiyahu the prophet. It's not entirely inappropriate for, for you know, given what we know about Yirmiyahu, for him to be saying things like this. We have, you have, we have sinned. And now what do we expect him to say? You have punished us. But now he says, you have not forgiven us. And now he goes on and on and on and talks about how God has afflicted them and God has punished them and God has caused them suffering. We're right back into where we were before this whole discourse on Shuva. So where does that leave us? Todd Lidefeld has another suggestion about the structure of Eicha, and I want to take that and develop it a little more in the last two or maybe three minutes that we have together, which is that this approach of tshuva, as articulated in Perak Gimel in chapter three, is a, a, a one approach and maybe a more masculine approach to the problem, and it's typical of the prophets, who are, of course, all men, uh, and, and maybe... I'm, I know I'm skating on thin ice here and I don't have time enough time to save myself if I fall through, uh, a, a, a more kind of binary masculine way of thinking about things. There I said it, if you want to take that grade, if not, uh, we can talk about uh, why I, we can try to, we can try to deconstruct the binary uh, construction that I just built there. Um, but he points to the fact that in earlier chapters, the figure who is speaking in the first person is almost invariably a feminine figure, the anthropomorphization of Sion as a feminine figure. Sion features in other biblical books, especially the latter half of the book of Yeshayahu, which is all about the redemption in the future, where Sion features as the maternal figure who welcomes her children back from exile. Sion is the figure who speaks here in the first two chapters, especially when she calls out, 
first to the passersby and then to God and says over and over again, let's just go back to chapter one, verse nine. See, O Lord, my misery, how the enemy jeers. Chapter, verse 11 in that same chapter. See, O Lord, and behold, how abject I have become. And then she starts a whole long speech describing her suffering to God. Over and over, especially in the first two chapters, we have this refrain of re'e Adonai, see, O Lord. When we think about the process of making meaning out of suffering, we've talked about martyrdom. We said that's not really relevant to this book. We've talked about speech and description and said that is very relevant. Eicha gives a voice to suffering and describes suffering and enables us to carry that experience further and not have it be lost. The last element I would say is the element of witnessing. Because it's one thing for the victim to speak, but it's another thing for another person to witness it and speak for them. To share the experience of the sufferer simply by watching and acknowledging the suffering that is going on. And I know that sounds facile because, in a sense, we expect justification or meaning to solve the problem. We expect meaning to satisfy us in a sense of, yes, now everything's okay. And of course, that doesn't happen here. But in the witnessing that goes on here is enormously powerful, not only because it, it, it acknowledges and reifies the suffering, but more specifically, because who's doing the witnessing, who's being called to witness here? It's God. And if you read through chapter three, and I'll just take one more minute, if I may, to look at the last few verses of chapter three. After he returns to this description of suffering, the male speaker in chapter three turns back to God and says, I have called your name, O Lord, this is in verse 55, from the depth of the pit. Hear my plea, do not shut your ear to my groan, to my cry. There's an appeal again to God, and then an acknowledgement that God has seen. Verse 59, you have seen, O Lord, the wrong done to me, O vindicate my right. There's a hope that the fact that God has seen, the very fact that it's not just some passerby who's seeing it, but God that ultimately the wrongs that have been afflicted in Israel, the suffering that Israel experiences will be righted, and there will be a return of the kind that we express in the last pen penultimate verse of Eicha, Hashivein Adonai Lecha Um There is, of course, much more to talk about, um, and there's the rest of the day to read through Eicha and think through some of the themes that we've been talking about. I'm um, very happy to uh, take a few minutes of uh, questions or feedback if we have time, and otherwise uh, you can contact me uh, privately on my uh, Drisha email address, which I'll put now in the chat box. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, for those joining us for Ms. Miriam Gedweiser's class, that will start in about 10 minutes. Otherwise, please be safe. Sarah, go ahead. Seth, so unmute yourself. Um, so we sin, we are punished, and then God takes us back. We know that it's not always true that God takes us back. I mean, he made, he made the promise to Avraham, you know, you're always mine. How do we know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How, how do we know? I mean, it's all, it's all a matter of faith. And, and, and in some sense, maybe that's the significance of the open, the, the ellipsis at the end of the book. We don't know. Mm. We, we look at history and we look for, for signs of, of God's action through history. But ultimately, we don't have Nivua and we don't know for sure. No, uh, we don't have Nivua, yeah. So who are, the, who are the men of vision? Where are the people of vision? 
they have no longer have prophecy, right? Prophecy has been taken from them. This is exactly the tension that we feel when we read Eicha. This is exactly the experience that we have on Tisha B'av. We wish we knew. We wish we had the answers. We don't. That's pretty sure. Theological justification in the midst of tragedy. That was the name of the uh, particular. Yeah. So I, I wasn't always able to follow all of the um, streams of thought. But, you know, when people say, why God? Why are you punishing us? Why, why do good people suffer? Why? Um, right. So, so right? Echa is not, Echa is, is, is not explicitly interested in that question because the simple answer is Israel sinned. And, but that's, that's, right. that's almost taken as a baseline and not really taken as a way of explaining or giving meaning to the suffering because the suffering is, is, is so intense and, and, and so, so, so uh, extreme that, 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 that doesn't kind of give meaning to it. Right. You can say we've sinned, but as soon as Israel, as soon as the, 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 as soon as they say we've sinned, then it goes on and describes more suffering. Well, what does that say? Right. That, that that's not, that, that, that's not enough of a, of, of, of an explanation or a justification or an answer or a way of making meaning out of it. Meaning is very difficult to find, I think, in this particular case, yeah. But, but on the other hand, one of the, one of the things that we're, we're saying is that on the other hand, it, it's, it's simpler than we think also. Sometimes simply finding language to describe the suffering is, is, is also a way of making meaning out of it, even if it's never the end of the meaning, even if it's never the ultimate meaning that, we're, that we maybe would satisfy us or, or allow us to say, okay, now we're done. Meaning the, 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 the process sometimes here is, is, is what's important because the process is, is more cathartic, more... Um, more uh, explanatory than we, more justificatory than we think it actually, than, than we think it's going to be. So there's always tension. And there is always tension, there's no question. Yeah. Have an easy fast. Thank you, and you.